Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 117th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Antoinette Tumilo. I'm the president of the Empire Club and your host for today's virtual event, Defining Recognition and Development Under the UN Decade for People of African Descent and UN 75, Roadmap for Canada's Black Youth. We have a very well-informed panel speaking to this today, which I'll, I will introduce in a few moments. I wanna take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible. Our lead event sponsor today is KPMG and our season sponsors are the Canadian Bankers Association and Waste Connections of Canada. I also want to thank our event partner, BBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. Now, I have a few logistical items to share with you before we get started. First, if you're finding your internet feed is slow, please see below and click the Switch Streams button. And don't hesitate to press the Request for Help button if you're experiencing technical difficulties our team will be happy to assist you. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. 2020 has opened the eyes of many to the necessary changes needed throughout our country and the world. The black community in Canada has faced centuries of systemic racism and there is a strong call now more than ever to work together to stop the oppression. But what does it mean to be a young person within the Black community in Canada? What are the prospects for the future? Is the situation encouraging going forward? Have there been setbacks related to the pandemic? And how does this community differ from its U.S. counterpart? There are a lot of questions that need answers. Now, more than ever before, people are starting to think strategically and in long-term perspectives. This will hopefully provide more opportunities and options for young Black Canadians. Our panel today will offer a vision for youth leadership in our country within the context of the Black communities. They'll discuss employment and employability prospects, education, and the urgency of intergenerational collaboration. Now, before we hear more, let me introduce our panel. Senator Wanda Thomas-Bernard, Senator of Nova Scotia, East Preston. Dr. Thomas-Bernard is a highly regarded social worker, educator, researcher, community activist, and advocate of social change. She has worked in mental health at the provincial level, in rural community practice at the municipal level, and since 1990, as a professor at the Dalhousie School of Social Work, where she is also served as a director for a decade. In 2016, she was appointed Special Advisor on Diversity and Inclusiveness at Dalhousie University, and she is the first African Nova Scotian to hold a tenure track position at Dalhousie University and to be promoted to full professor. Dr. Thomas Bernard is also a founding member of the Association of Black Social Workers which helps address the needs of marginalized citizens, especially those of African descent. Stephanie Day, 
works for UN Women as a national coordinator in Canada for the We Empower program, encouraging deeper action in both private and public sectors to advance women's economic empowerment in Canada. She is a non-executive director at global frontier markets risk firm, Damina Advisors and Vice President Finance for the Board of Organization of Women in International Trade, Toronto Chapter. Stephanie holds a BA Honours in Political Science and Law from Carleton University and an MA in International Studies and Diplomacy from SOAS University of London. Georgette Morris is in the doctorate stream of graduate studies at Carleton University in Ethics and Public Affairs. She holds an Honours BA in Human Rights and Equity Studies, a BA in Social Sciences and an MA in Public Policy Administration and Law all from York University, as well as certificates in law and society, public policy analysis and democratic administration. Her primary research interests are in the area of labor, policy, equity, human rights, immigration, citizenship, government, political debate, public reason and agenda setting. Georgette has experience working at all levels of government within a range of departments and ministries. Her aspirations include making political debate and access to what is said in Parliament more accessible and understandable to citizens. And Candace Kochapa, welcome back, Candace. I think this is your third time with us this season. Third, there you go. Candace is the founder of the Developing Young Leaders of Tomorrow Today project. The program serves the purpose of connecting participants of the program with strong mentors within the black communities and non-racialized allies who have been successful at navigating systemic structures and creating access to available opportunities for marginalized people. Candace holds a master's and bachelor's degree in social work from York University and a diploma in child and youth work from George Brown College. She is the recipient of the Top 25 Women of Influence in Canada, awarded by Women of Influence Global, Top 100 Accomplished Black Canadian Women by co-authors Honorable Dr. Jean Augustine, Dr. Denise O'Neill Green, and Donna Jones Simmons, and Top 21 New Founders to Watch by Future of Good in 2020. Now, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone on this call that this is an interactive event. So I encourage you to send your questions in and uh, Candice will make sure to uh, have the panelists respond to them. So Candice, over to you. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Uh, it is such a pleasure and privilege to join each of you today and to have this esteemed panel uh, for this very timely discussion. So without further delay, I'd like to just jump right in. Uh, and I'd like to open today's discussion by asking each of you to take 90 seconds to tell us about uh, what you're working on currently uh, in your different roles. So uh, Senator Bernard, why don't I start with you? I was hoping you'd start with one of the younger women on the panel. <laughs> My, yes, would you mind? Would, Absolutely. Uh, I have to just wrap my head around what I'm currently working on because there are so many things. Sure. So 
need to just narrow that down briefly. Okay, absolutely. Uh, so Georgette, why don't, I, why don't we start with you then? Absolutely. Uh, so currently I am working on my research at Carleton University. I'm writing quite a bit now, finishing up final classes, as well as I'm volunteering with Jacku Combit, which is a Black-led organization here in Ottawa. Aside from that, I'm also working uh, with the Social Sciences Humanity Research Council in programs, particularly the Connection programs. Very good, thank you. And Stephanie? Uh, thank you so much, Candice, and thanks so much to the Empire Club of Canada for hosting us. So um, as mentioned, I coordinate the We Empower program in Canada. So since 2018, we've been very focused on advancing gender equality and women's economic empowerment across uh, the G7. Uh, in the public sector, private sector, and civil society. Uh, I also support the Women's Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, um, and we have also been focusing on how to support Black women entrepreneurs, especially since um, the research shows us that they have been some of the most hardest hit since COVID-19. Uh, so we've been having some roundtables, and we are uh, ramping up um, to do some more work supporting them uh, in 2021. So pretty much all things gender, all things women's empowerment, uh, that's that's what I'm into. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. And Senator? Thank you. And I'm really pleased to be on this panel with such uh, amazing young women. I really appreciate all that you're doing. Let me share just briefly what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, so. You know, in my capacity as a senator, one of the things that I've been probably most focused on during the pandemic is actually bringing awareness to what I call the collision of the two pandemics. So the pandemic of COVID and the pandemic of anti-Black racism. And then intertwined with that, of course, is, is heightened awareness um, around the world about systemic racism, but also here in Canada. And so a lot of the work in different spaces within parliament is really working on, so how do we take this moment, the Black Lives Matter moment and ensure that it becomes a movement? So a lot of my work is, is focused there, but also in, in Nova Scotia, I've, I've been sort of busy on the ground as well uh, working with some colleagues around a particular research project, looking at uh, impact of COVID on intimate partner violence in the African Nova Scotian community and how we ensure that uh, health and social services interventions are culturally responsive. So I, I didn't plan to be involved in that work at that level, but here I am, and you know that's that's part of what I, I love doing. And uh, another big piece that I'm working on is actually looking at employment equity and how we need to look at changes in the legislation to better position us. And for for the work that we're going to be talking about today, I think that's that's really timely. So those are some highlights. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator. And thank you, Stephanie and Georgia, for sharing, you know, giving us a preamble of the work that you're currently doing. So um, today's discussion will be free-flowing, as, as we mentioned, covering topics relating to the current Canadian experience for Black talent under uh, in line with the United Nations dec uh, declared decade for people of African descent. 
as well as uh, celebrating a UN 75. So, um, Senator Bernard, again, I'd like to start with you uh, and ask you, what is your view of the current education and employment opportunities landscape for Black young people? One of the things that I've seen just during the past seven or eight months is actually because of the, the more global awareness of anti-Black racism and the push to ensure that all Black lives matter, I've seen many more opportunities sort of bubble to the surface for people of African descent. It's my sincere hope that those opportunities are not um, casual opportunities, but they're opportunities that really give space for, for people of African descent to develop their full potential in, in the career options of their choice. Uh, educational opportunities is just so important, so critical to employment and employability. You can't talk about employment and employability without also talking about education. And so part of what I see happening now are efforts aimed at addressing, seriously addressing some of those barriers to education, which therefore then impact employment and employability. What we need is a convergence of the systemic change, the changes in those areas, but also the preparedness. So the work that we are doing in communities becomes that much more essential so that we're preparing young people to take up these opportunities that will be there for them. This, can, this has to be more than a moment. It really has to be a movement. Absolutely, very, very important. Uh, points that you made there, Senator. Thank you so much. And Georgette, uh, can I ask you also to piggyback on the same question? Absolutely. And I would strongly agree and echo uh, the Senator's response where there are many opportunities that I have seen come to the surface, uh, both from an education perspective within many different organizations. And my greatest hope is that they're not temporary, they're not casual, they're not precarious, that they're long term and that there's a true investment in the development of capabilities of individuals, because essentially uh, having a temporary opportunity is not going to change the long stemming issues that we have. A temporary fix is not a fix to a long systemic issue and problem that's prevalent as well as inherent in many organizations. So what I see now is a conscientious effort across many levels of society that wish to um, make change and add uh, value and unpack issues and have these difficult conversations. And what I would say is that for Black young people, inclusive of, of those of African descent and Caribbean, that there is a lot of opportunities out there. And it can sometimes feel overwhelming, but there are many organizations such as Dialot, such as Jackie Combi, that you know share these opportunities. So I would strongly encourage the young people and youth of today to you know, get in touch with organizations. There's many great opportunities. Um, the other day, for example, I came across an, a very interesting opportunity to be part of Senate for a day. There's many opportunities for young people. And so at this point, I would just tell everyone, you know, go online, be open to looking, join networks, because there's so many opportunities and great organizations that are positioned and that are willing to share the information. So essentially, if you're willing to look, you'll definitely find many things. But uh, I, I just hope that this continues. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Georgette. And 100% agree uh, that, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities starting to emerge. Um, and, you know, the key piece is that they're not just around because there's so much of a spotlight being being focused on Black issues or issues facing Black communities. But we hope that this is, you know, uh, the work that is going on right now extends, especially beyond uh, the UN decade. Um, and into, you know, many, many years to come. So, um, uh, Stephanie, I'd like to bring you in on the discussion now to talk about how can the UN Decade and UN 75 be leveraged as opportunities to advance Black talent in Canada? For sure. I, I actually, before I get to that, I just wanted to add something on the previous question. And that is for us to really consider that um, maybe it's time also for um, the private sector to bend and to cater to the youth and to women. Um, I'm coming from a gender perspective, from a feminist perspective, and um, we know that Black women are underpaid, they're underrepresented in leader leadership positions, and it's not necessarily that they are not qualified, it's just that they have been held back by systemic barriers. Um, and I like how the Senator um, started talking about that sort of double COVID, um, excuse me if I've got it wrong, but you know, there was the COVID and then there was Black Lives Matter, these two very big um, instances that happened in the world at the same time and made people pause and reflect. Um, working with UN Women, we are off, often encouraging companies to um, think about gender equality and women's empowerment. And when Black Lives Matter happened, there was a shift. And that shift was, as um, Senator referenced, to focus on anti-racism and discrimination in the workplace. Um, and what we have been saying is that it's not either or, it's not just gender and it's not just uh, anti-racism, that in fact it's both. And really pushing that intersectional lens on the work that's happening and really transforming diversity and inclusion culture so that young people of different backgrounds, different races, they have those opportunities to grow um, and to lead amazing organizations. The other thing I wanted to add on in addition to that is also thinking about education, um, but thinking about entrepreneurship education because we yeah. know the lever uh, in terms of really creating generational wealth is through entrepreneurship so how are we arming our youth and our minorities and women um, to really transcend um, their socioeconomic status by using entrepreneurship as one of those opportunities. This is not something that's common in our sort of public school education but there's a huge opportunity there that I think is overlooked. In terms of the UN um, uh, tools, uh, from UN Women, we use the Women's Empowerment Principles. So these were set up in 2010, um, and they really serve as a guide for businesses on how to empower women. Uh, we have more than 4,000, uh, almost 4,000 companies signed on, and that's sort of what I've been doing here in Canada, encouraging companies to, to sign on to the webs and to use the Women's Empowerment Principles as a guide, as a framework to create change through the organization. So when we have, for instance, high-level leaders embrace gender equality, women's empowerment, anti-racism, we can see those changes ripple through the organization. And the WEPs, they take you through leadership, health and safety, um, supply chain, you know, uh, again, touching on um, entrepreneurship. Let's support some businesses that are owned by women or minorities. Let's give them some opportunities. Let's collect the data. Let's report on progress to see where we are, where we want to go. These are tools that we can use and these values, again, as well, from the UN, 
uh, that we can use to guide our work in combating racism and bringing a coordinated approach across, across the public sector, private sector, civil society. Um, so these are just a few of my thoughts um, and I'll, I'll hand back over to you, Candice. That's amazing, uh, Stephanie. Absolutely, I I love the 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 um the thought process you know behind behind you and women, in that you know that intersectional lens is so important, right? But when you're talking about um, the the idea of um, intergenerational wealth or or wealth that uh, exists beyond the per the current uh, person delivering the the opportunity. This is something that is absent uh, in a standard way from Black communities, and it is not because we don't have the ability to um, to create wealth or we don't have the ability to sustain wealth. Is that we are working from so far behind that it is difficult for us to to build wealth and our generational wealth. And, and go ahead, Senator. Go ahead first, Stephanie. Go ahead. No, it's, it's really just, um, you know, transforming our mind, you know, for so long, we've been taught that you go to school and you get a job. And that's just, you know, that's just what it is. But there's more than just going to school and getting a job. Well, not show now, but show up in the year. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Like, okay, I can still hear you. Stephanie, were you finished? Yeah, sorry, I think there was a bit of a delay. Uh, I was just I was just going to make the point that it's important to see <clears throat> diverse women entrepreneurs, diverse entrepreneurs at a young age so that uh, minorities and youth can begin to envision themselves in those type of positions and believe that they can do it. Please over to you, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie, Absolutely. I'm pleased to hear you talk about entrepreneurship because it's, it's vital. And when I think about uh, your title, Defining Recognition and Development, what do they really mean? Part of development clearly is entrepreneurship and, and how, we do, how we do that work. And all businesses across the country have been so impacted by COVID. Black businesses in particular are more likely to be smaller businesses and they have many more barriers that they have to overcome just to stay in the game. And it's very, very challenging. I think about my daughter and son-in-law who took early retirement from very successful careers. And my son-in-law is in uh, computer technology. My daughter is in social work, leadership management in mental health. They took early retirement to start their own business at the age of 40. And they're still in business. <laughs> but it's very, very, very challenging. And I hear from many black business owners from across the country about how difficult it's been for them during COVID. And I think it's really important for us to, to uh, as we're talking about entrepreneurship, to really talk about what are those barriers? What are those barriers in terms of accessing credit you know, there's, there's no intergenerational wealth to access private credit. So the systemic barriers in, in the whole, that whole system. But it's also the racism that business owners experience in the conducting of their businesses. And yeah. so these are pieces that we need to make sure that we're addressing. And I, I, my, my grandson is here. I'm here in Ontario. 
Uh, because my daughter and son-in-law are small business owners and I'm here helping uh, with their two sons. It's part of what we're doing to try to keep us all as a family going forward together. But not every family has that kind of support system that they could do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely, Senator Bernard. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, all of us uh, who are parents on 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 this uh, panel today understand uh, what you're what you're experiencing with your grandson. Uh, myself, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of locked away in, in the office, but my two girls are right outside the door, uh, you know, waiting to to come in and, and be on screen to work with with me. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I'm, I'm very excited at the fact that we're focusing on the piece of recognition and development where we're not just saying to our, our black youth or um, black community members, you know, continue to, to try to go and find a job, right? Um, it, that, that narrative has always been pushed uh, on us that that's just what we do. However, the, the creativity that exists uh, within black communities um, begs us to be Um, innovative in hand and uh, in its nuanced way has opened up many doors for, for people to look at entrepreneurship as the next uh, level of, um, uh, of labor market, right? Uh, uh, Georgette, I want to open it up to you as well. Uh, do you want a question? Yes, to follow up with a question. Yes. And so and I would strongly agree with everything that's been said, because it's very important not only to have this mindset of this one stream kind of pathway to, you know, do the school thing and get a job, but to really be involved in the community and be involved in the different opportunities that are out there, because small businesses are, are these are real people. These are real families that are contributing to the economy. And it's very important if we really want to develop, I think, as a nation, as a community, as a society, as a province, as a state, it's imperative that we invest in small businesses and that if there's any barriers that are present, that we remove those things and we sit down and deeply think about the ways in which these barriers prevent people from fully developing their capabilities. I think of a quote by Toni Morrison that says, you know, she tells her students, when you get these jobs that you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that you're your real job is that now that you are free, you are to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. And I look at that quote and I, I resonate with it so deeply because, you know, when you get to these positions and when you, you know, develop yourself and your capabilities, the real job and the real work is to share that knowledge and to really impact your community. And I challenge everyone, you know, as you develop and as you grow to, you know, give back, to, you know, to take on a mentee, to impact the community, because I can honestly say a lot of the opportunities I've been given and that I've been aware of have come from people that have directly, you know, let me know what's out there and what's aware. And, you know, as a child, I participated in many programs with the city in terms of uh, summer camp. I met a lot of interesting people. And they have, I remember very specifically, actually, there was a day that the federal government came and they had a book and it was called Youth Link. And this book had all the opportunities such as My Explore, many different um, opportunities for youth here in Canada. And I don't think they published the book anymore. I, I believe it's on online at youth.gc.ca and that book had pages of resources that tell young people about the various things that we have right here in the city in the province in the country and that we should be well aware of so i i strongly urge everyone to develop themselves and their skills and yes achieve things academically but also participate in society and part of that participation includes uh, small businesses 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I I like that the thought uh, the thought line that that each of you have presented in terms of um, making sure that there's space for small businesses uh, and in in uh, entrepreneurship particularly. I'm I'm wondering um, if if you all can kind of take a minute to think about um, you know. In addition to what is in development for small businesses, how can larger corporations facilitate entrepreneurship in in recognition again of you know the UN decade, but also recognizing how important it is to transition from um, the way the labor market is currently set up versus you know how COVID has really come in and changed how uh, the labor market will be in the future. Um, if I could just come in quickly on that. So over the summer at UN Women, we uh, were working very hard on trying to understand the experiences of women entrepreneurs during COVID-19. Um, and we did a lot of research connecting with women's business associations across the G7. And we put together a tool which is available on our site and I'm happy to share the link afterwards that basically, um, basically um, addressed how the public sector, the private sector, and the civil society can support women entrepreneurs during COVID-19 and through COVID-19 um, across five key, five key themes, um, which are some of the barriers we mentioned for women entrepreneurs. And some of the stuff that we came up for uh, with regards to the private sector, I mean, one of the main opportunities is in procurement and supply chain. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we have Canadian Aboriginal Minority Supplier Council, we have We Connect International, we have WBE. These are all organizations that are committed to um, giving businesses the opportunity to source from women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses. Um, I think oftentimes maybe businesses will feel like they don't even know where to go, you know, to find um, a minority-owned business or women-owned business, but these organizations, they are your answer. Um, and we see some good practices from larger companies, for instance, like Ernst & Young or P&G, who will intentionally say that we are sourcing 500 million, 300 million, some of our corporate spend dedicated to women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses. So, so that, for instance, definitely is a huge opportunity, I think, for the private sector to come in and really um, um, uh, lift up women-owned or minority-owned businesses, especially during this time. Stephanie, thank you so much. Uh, and George Edens and Senator Bernard, of course, this is open to you as well, if you have any comments there. Uh, yes, I would just uh, jump in and say that uh, relating to small supply chains, uh, you know, when there's developments happening and when there's uh, construction and things like that, we, there has to be a conscientious effort to invest in these small businesses that are women owned and that are owned by uh, individuals from employ employment equity groups. There's been a lot of really interesting research that's been done abroad, specifically in looking at uh, in England as well as in Australia that have special programs that if a development is happening in a city, there's a process that has to transpire to ensure sure that small businesses know of the process when uh, something is going out to tender when there is a call for proposal. Uh, we can see uh, many specific examples right here in the city of Toronto where uh, with various uh, community benefits agreements and developments that there it has to be at the forefront. It has to be intentionally done. And I think that with great organizations such as the United Nations that are advocating these things, more and more we'll see these things become a norm. And that's where, that's where the real goal is to ensure that we don't need to necessarily do a special call, but these businesses will be considered at the forefront and at the beginning. Yeah. Excellent, excellent point, thank you. If I could, if I could speak to this and, and take the conversation in just a little different direction. 
And I, I, I'm sorry I keep coming back to COVID, but obviously it's top of mind. So when I think about COVID and I think about those large companies that were allowed to stay open, and I think about the overrepresentation of racialized women, poor women, um, newcomers who were in these essential em employment sectors, and amongst the lowest paid, mm -hmm. while these some of these companies made more money because of COVID, but how were the, the, the women, especially the, the people who were keeping those businesses open, keeping them going, and the, the lack of value through the lack of recognition through their pain, is something that we ought to be ashamed about in this country. The fact that, you know, the, the, some people are even balk, some large companies balk at the idea of increasing minimum wage. Yeah. For these people who are so essential, and we saw that through COVID. And once we're through COVID, once, you know, we're past the crisis, will we go back? To the way things were, and will we begin to see things differently? Will you know CEOs and of these major companies see things differently? Will they value these essential workers in a different way? And most importantly, to how we pay people. Right. I could just There's add there. Room. Sorry. No, go if ahead. I, yeah, if I could just add that, I, I strongly agree. And when we look at the, the many businesses that were allowed to stay open and, you know, that were deemed essential and that they were essential, the workers were essential, yet they were expendable because we didn't care. And we didn't, you know, at, we had temporary wage increases, but that was a temporary measure. And why is that temporary? If, we, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at, you know, the rate of pay at the minimum wage and sustaining a good life. And, you know, good can be widely defined, but essentially a comfortable life and one that one ought to have access to. And the way in which, you know, these individuals were working in these, in these areas that we said are essential, that we need, that we cannot go without, yet we chose to completely absolve ourselves of any real conscious societal responsibility. And to me, that's problematic. Absolutely. And I think even to go beyond that, actually just thinking largely speaking about the workforce and the way that we work, the structure of work, which is very archaic, if you think about it. Uh, and for a long time prior to COVID, we were talking about the future of work and encouraging companies to change and to have flexible work policies and to support um, elder care and child care and all these things that they said they don't have money for, they don't have budget for, they don't have time for, and it's not a priority. And then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, everybody was on Zoom. Everybody was working flexibly. Everybody had the technology to continue to do the work. And everybody had their children or their grandmothers in their Zoom calls with them. Yeah. And they understood. Yeah. And, it, and it just all of a sudden, it made sense. Like, oh, these are issues that we need to take seriously. And the budgets all of a sudden appeared. And the conversations that were just discussions somehow became reality. So um, I, I'm, I'm with you, Georgette and Senator, and hoping that this is not just something of COVID, but this is something that we take into the future. And COVID has been great in that it has sort of paused us in our time to reflect mm -hmm. on the way things were working and not working and how we want to 
things to be in the, in the future. And I, I'm really hoping that um, society as a whole will take the good, the little bit of good that has come out of COVID and run with it into the into 2021 and beyond. Yeah, fantastic. And, and actually, that's a great segue to the next question, which is, um, you know, where do you see opportunities for intergenerational collaboration? Uh, thinking about all the different um, conversion of of uh, barriers, all the different convergence of uh, issues that are coming up health-wise, uh, you know, um, socioeconomically, all of those things. How can, um, from one generation to the next, how can we work together now to prepare for the future? Uh, Stephanie, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, at UN Women, we have uh, generation equality. Um, this was our multi-generational campaign. It got delayed a bit because of COVID, but we're still moving strong for 2021. Um, and the generation equality campaign demands equal pay, equal sharing of unpaid care and domestic work, an end to sexual harassment and all forms of violence against women and girls, healthcare services that respond to their needs and equal participation in political life and decision-making in all areas of life. Um, so it's about having conversations. It's about being vocal. It's about talking about the things that we're talking about now. Anyone of any age, of any background can get involved and can get active on this. We have um, social media kits um, and, and different ways that you can get involved in your community to have these type of conversations. But it's about saying that, you know, we haven't made, we've made some progress of course but we haven't made enough and it's about being radical about the future about gender equality about women's empowerment so it's just an opportunity for us all to get involved and to advocate and to change um, some of the things that need to happen fantastic uh georgette Yes, absolutely. So there's a few things that I've thought about that uh, potentially could uh, contribute to this uh, intergenerational collaboration. So some of those things, you know, would have to include uh, more collective uh, networks. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is that we're not going to do this kind of exclusivity. It's, it's about who you know, but we're trying to be whole and human with one another. So that means, you know, if, for example, if an organization, you know, has some positions coming up, develop the young people in your organization, have mentorship programs, and not just to say you have mentorship programs, but have real programs and have two-way mentorship programs because we can all learn from each other. There's things you bring to the tables, there's things I bring to the table. So we need to have this consistent conversation that's dynamic and that's about, there's a real back and forth. Uh, similarly, I had another thought about uh, when we were younger, you know, we had this like take your child to work day. And I think we need to kind of embrace that, but on a much larger scale. And it could be, you know, take your colleague to work, you, you know, take somebody to work because you never know the, the extent of a role or what really transpires until you can actually be within it. So I think it's great we have that opportunity when we're young, but you just don't have that again after I think it's perhaps grade six or seven, somewhere around there. So, you know, really embrace your opportunity. And I would challenge, again, like I said earlier, like anyone um, who's like a leader in the organization or anything like that to really, you know, sit down and sometimes think about, you know, what can be done because sometimes it feels overwhelming right now. And like we've talked about, you know, we're in this, you know, double pandemic of COVID, of anti anti-black racism but you know there's sometimes it feels like you can't do anything and i that feeling is a very hard feeling but there's small changes that we can make and it could be something as simple as just having a coffee with somebody having a 15-minute zoom call encouraging each other because we are all in this together and we know that COVID has revealed to us all the many inequities that are within our society and if we really want to do the work it starts with each of us it's not just a, a one-sided thing it's not one organization it's not one person it's all of us just doing a little bit being more open being more kind and really having that compassion 
passion. And like Stephanie had uh, noted earlier, all of a sudden we were able to work from home. We were able to encompass elderly care. We we're able to do all these things. So for me, I would strongly say that just be human and be compassionate and understand that we're all in this. And if we can help somebody, let's do it. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Uh, Senator, do you want to add anything here on intergenerational collaboration? As the elder here, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I absolutely uh, believe in Angela Davis's statement, um, lift as we climb. And I also say we must lift as we lead. So as we're engaging in our careers, in community, you know, in, in engaging in civil rights uh, matters. Uh, as older people, we need to make sure we're bringing young people along with us. As an older person, I know personally that one of the things I have to really work at is making sure that I'm creating space for young people to really have a voice. And so what does that mean for me? It means that sometimes I have to work at really being quiet. I have to work at really listening. I have to work at really making this space authentic space and not tokenistic ageism space, right? Ageism goes two ways. You know, we have ageism on the side of older people, but we also have it on the side of younger people. This notion, well, you know, they, they just got out of school, what do they know? And so being open to embracing what young people can bring to a conversation, to a discussion, to an organization, and trying to make sure that we bring those voices in. The message I would have to young people would be, uh, don't be quick to send us out to pasture. <laughs> and and I see, I've seen that happen. You know, I've seen, I've seen a dismissing of people just because they're of a certain age and vintage. And so I think it, it's a requirement of, of being open on both sides and of the age spectrum, all sides of the age spectrum, and recognizing that we all have some work to do in making sure that we are authentic, authentically listening and engaging and embracing, and that all the voices matter. And my grandsons remind me every single day that I'm getting old. <laughs> But they also remind me that I'm staying young because I'm with them. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. I get this message from them every day. So I consider myself very lucky <laughs> that I have that. Very good. Thank you, Senator. And uh, and absolutely, you know, one of one of the points that I'll that I'll share here from personal experience is actually that Senator Bernard has created space for me uh, in terms of, you know, even at the point where Dialog was still in development, Senator Bernard saw me as a young leader and really took me under her wings and, and you know, gave me the opportunity to meet some, some influential people as well to explore, you know, what developing a program that supports Black youth, what does that look like? So I was really um, honored, of course, uh, to have that relationship with her, and I'm and I'm seeing more and more where uh, you know senators across the spectrum are looking at how do we work 
with uh, with younger people. Um, and, and I think that's one of the essential pieces, as you mentioned, Georgette and, uh, and Stephanie, one of the essential pieces of, of, of um, get, keeping the conversation going when you're having that two-way dialogue between, um, between our history, our present, and our future. I think that's that's really important to have. So I'm gonna have um, just jump into the dive into the last question. We have about a minute left, uh, and before I take some audience questions, I want to pose this first question to Senator Bernard and uh, give you all an opportunity as well to uh, to answer. So, how can Canadian Black young people learn from and leverage the social justice movement that caused structural change? such as the election of the first Black and South Asian woman to become vice president in the United States. Senator Bernard? I think part of what needs to happen is, is uh, that sort of critical reflection and critical analysis. And I see it, I, I would even take a step back and look be, be, behind um, sort of where we are in this present moment. And I remember I guess it's 12 years ago now when President Obama was elected. And there was this worldwide kind of conversation happening because you know the first black president was elected in America, you know, the quote unquote greatest, one of the greatest countries in the world, that somehow we were now in a post-racial society. And I think that we need to do a critical analysis of the Obama years and then the post-Obama years and now where we are now and how we position for the future so that the mistakes that were made in the assumptions that were made about this post-racial era, and some of us, remain silent around some of those discussions about us being in a post-racial era. And it enabled the, 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 the poison of racism to uh, just eat away at some of the systemic changes, some of the movements that we had already, some of the successes, some of the achievements were eroded and eroded and eroded and eroded. And to this point of, of such the violence of racism and the impact of racism has become so much more visible now. And so the election of the first black woman as a vice president, black and South Asian, uh, we need to look at that in a more holistic, bring a more holistic uh, analysis to that, but also to look at what else do we need to be doing because the change isn't just happening with the president and the vice president of the United States. Mm -hmm. what, does that, what does any of that mean for us in Canada? What does any of that mean for us in the world? And what does that mean for young uh, Black Canadians, youth mm -hmm. who are in school, who are positioning themselves for their futures? How do we, how do we take that, take this moment and work it into a movement to get to those systemic changes. And what part do we what part do we do we all have to play? And sometimes we say, well, you know, that's a leadership issue. And sometimes we say, well, it's a it's a grassroots movement issue. I say it's not an either or, but a both and. Yeah. That needs to be that political will, um, 
from those in leadership positions, but there also needs to be a groundswell of a movement on the ground uh, working at these issues and influencing decision makers in the best ways that we know how to do. Agree. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator, for sharing that. Uh, I would love to engage both Georgette and Stephanie on this question. Uh, however, I'm noting that we are <laughs> we are out of time, and I do want to give the audience uh, an opportunity to ask some questions. So, um, you know, we hope to to continue this discussion. Um, nevertheless, we have a first question from the audience coming in. This is from Jebby, and uh, it. it I think it's just open to everyone. So black communities and brown minority women and men have been deprived. Does the Canadian government have any plan for marginalized black community uh, committees along with brown committees? If so, what are they? Uh, I'm going to presume uh, I can, I can. This question to Senator first and uh, anyone else, Georgette or I would I would direct the person to look at the government's anti-racism uh, secretariat. Uh, have a look and see what that secretariat is doing, and to see if if you have questions. I think there's space uh, within that work for the community to engage with the secretariat, and I I encourage more um, black and brown Canadians to do so. Uh, Stephanie or Georgette, do you want to take that on as well? Okay. Uh, so, sorry, Stephanie. No, I mean, just, just building on the Senator, I think that, again, it's the timing, you know, there's some um, Kairos moments. And this is one of those Kairos moments where people are listening to Black voices. Um, and we then have that responsibility to speak up. And so I think that there's nothing that we cannot achieve if we don't try. Um, Senator gave the example of the anti-racism secretariat, but even if you get in touch with your local MP, I'm sure that they're, they're listening now. Their ears are wide open. Um, anyone is willing to engage us, provided we are coming with some tangible and reasonable suggestions on what we need and what we think needs to happen in our community. So, um, like, strike now. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Uh, and then question to just moving, uh, moving along quickly here. Uh, we have Michael. Um, he says, uh, Senator Bernard spoke to the opportunity to push for stronger employment equity uh, legislation federally as well as provincially, territorially, and municipally, frameworks that are, are restored, comprehensive, expanded, indigenous peoples, people of color, women, uh, persons with disabilities, and uh, uh, LGBTQ plus individuals. So as we, as we build back better, how can we realize this critical policy objective by uh, adding employment equity, consistent obligations, and confidentiality to all economic recovery. Sorry, there's more to this question, but I'm, I'm just uh, recognizing time. So I'm going to just read that last part. As we build back better, how can we realize this critical policy objective by adding employment equity, 
for consistent obligations. So they've asked the question, but also given some answers. But how, how, how would you comment on this, the idea of building back better? How, how, do we, how do we even position ourselves specifically relating to Black issues in Canada? Would either of you like to speak to that? Yeah, I, I, could, I think I can start off. Um, I would say that when it comes to building back better, that we remain open and we have continuous conversations, not conversations that stop at one level or stop at one uh, aspect of development or a particular uh, phase. So I would say that it's imperative to continue having the conversations and truly engage citizen because this is a time of public reason. This is a time of you know, public debate and we need to ensure that we're hearing all the voices. And there's many ways to participate, like Stephanie has said, in terms of reaching out to your MP, reaching out to your member of provincial parliament, reaching out to your city councillor. You know, as, some, as a citizen living in the country, you should know who these individuals are, respective of where you live, and you should feel comfortable engaging with them. And I, they're very responsive. I've had many engagements with them, and they're very nice people, and they're very attentive, and they want to hear from people. They want, they, you know, these are the people they represent. They want to hear. And, you know, often I think that um, when we think about building back better, we have to take in consideration building back better doesn't just mean in one sector or one area. It's an all-inclusive approach. So that may mean looking at something and saying, you know what, that's not, that's not the best way to do that. That no longer works. The traditional nine to five, let's be more open. If somebody wants to work later, earlier, whatever that looks like, because again, we're all in this together. So it needs to be um, a very integrated approach that is multidimensional. If I, I could just add a couple of points. Um, in the building back better, we've, we've heard the analysis is really clear that it needs to bring a feminist lens. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a widespread recognition of how COVID has impacted women. And, and you know some conversations, some analysts are saying it's setting back the women's agenda generations really. And if that's happening for women, rest assured that for racialized people in general, for black people in particular, yeah. you know, magnify that two or three times. Mm -hmm. So when I think about building back better, and I think about the feminism, talk about the G B plus, we mm. need to make sure that the anti-black racism lens, the systemic racism lens, is a forethought and not an afterthought. So it needs to be fully integrated into all of the development and planning for building back better. And I absolutely agree with Georgette, it needs to be across all sectors. And writing, writing in, right? You know, we don't do enough advocacy. That's true. We do not do enough advocacy. And I'm always shocked when I ask people, well, who's your MLA or who's your MP? And they say, I don't know. They don't have a clue. And so you need to know who these people are because they are your representatives. And you need to engage in those conversations, send those emails, ask those questions, not just during election campaigns. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is, this is such an incredibly important um, discussions to have and and one of course that that merits more than one sitting 
right? But um, nevertheless, I want to thank you, uh, Sen Senator Bernard, uh, Stephanie, and Georgette for spending your Friday afternoon with us. And thank you to the audience members as well um, for your questions and for interacting with us. There are more questions here, but unfortunately, we are out of time for this session. So again, I'd like to extend my gratitude to each of you for joining me this afternoon. Um, to have this uh, this very, very important discussion and I uh, hope that we get a chance to do it again. So for now, I'll actually turn it back over to uh, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you, Candice. Um, so many great takeaways from the discussion. Um, you know, the things that really resonated with me was we got to listen, we got to mentor, uh, We've got to be there. I love the comment, Senator, on ageism. You're right. We have a voice. <laughs> and, and the whole thing about the feminist lens, um, absolutely so critical. And we've been having a lot of discussions at the Empire Club on that. And I couldn't agree more on we should all be more worried about essential workers than we have been. And nurturing them and helping them and making sure they're paid properly. I get a little emotional about this. Um, we're having our Nation Builder of the Year Award and we are awarding it to frontline workers and that's all frontline workers. We didn't pick one because there are too many and they're all over the place and they touch our lives in so many ways. So um, that really resonated with with me as well. So I want to thank you for taking the time. This was a great discussion and uh, one that's got to keep going and one that we've got to keep all being involved. And as a white woman, we want to help too, okay? Um, it, it's important that it, it takes a village to solve these problems. And that village is cross-section. It's everybody has to be involved. So um, thank you. I do want to take a moment to tell you about our upcoming events. Um, on December 7th, we've got Raul Barjois from the Institute of Corporate Directors coming to speak with us. On December 8th, we have a really interesting panel talking about small business success post-COVID. Everybody really wants to hear about that. And uh, I just spoke about our Nation Builder Award. We're super excited about that event. It's our signature event. It's on December 10th at 20, uh, December 10th at noon. Uh, we've got a roster of VIP celebrities, but the thing that is more touching than everything is the testimonials from people that we've got to also share with our audience. So please join us. Uh, we still have some time to, um, for people to uh, submit um, a testimonial for a frontline worker uh, at hashtag nation builder hero of your choice. We are doing a random draw because again, how do you pick? Um, and it's, you know, chance of winning $5,000. So please make your nominations or your test. It's not a nomination, it's, it's just a submission. We want to hear those stories and share them with our audience. And um, registration for all these events is free. So I encourage you all to check it out on our site and uh, hope you can join us. Um, this meeting is now adjourned and uh, thank you for joining us today.